I'm Maggie Kelly, and this is Parent Kind, the show where I investigate the parenting experience from every angle possible. Each episode, I'll hunt down juicy stories from a new topic, tackling all the big stuff sex, body image, mental health, and everything in between. Thanks to our sponsor at Body Catalyst. Now, let's get started. A quick trigger warning, today's episode does deal with infant death and abortion. If it's too soon or too raw, please skip to the next ep. If not, I know this is going to be super hard for you to listen to, but maybe give it a go. We'll do it together. When I first set out to write this podcast, it was my absolute non-negotiable that I would include an episode on loss, on infant loss. Of all of the stuff I went searching for during my own pregnancy, this seemed like this huge black hole. There was just nothing out there. So today I bring you two stories about women who have had to farewell their babies. Two very different stories. And I want you to know before I tell you anything further that both of these women are okay. This is not an episode that's out to make you feel sad or depressed or hopeless. This is an episode to show you that you can survive this and you will also be okay. The first story is about an Australian mum of two who accidentally fell pregnant during the pandemic. She tells me her story of getting an abortion and consciously putting ceremony and ritual around it to really lean in and feel it fully and therefore allow it to pass. She chose to share this journey online through her Instagram account and It's really a fascinating look at what abortion could look like when approached differently with compassion. The second story is from a young woman in America who found out really early into her pregnancy that her daughter had life-threatening deformities. She chose to continue the pregnancy and so she steps me through what that was like and how she did eventually farewell her little girl on the other side. So, the week that I was scripting this story, it was announced that America's Supreme Court had just overturned Roe v. Wade, a bill that protected abortion rights in America. That week, the world exploded into outrage. So today, we are humbly reminded of the fact that abortion is still illegal in over 20 countries, now including many states in America, and fiercely restricted and persecuted in varying levels of severity in so many other places. Today's story of abortion, which was so powerful, even without this context, suddenly feels so much more important for us to hear and to witness because it showcases beautifully how crucial this medical service is for women, safe abortions, legal abortions, and in this case, one that the mother still had to work furiously to ensure didn't become a dark blight on her life, but a moment of choice that allowed her to keep living. I dedicate today's episode to all of the women who are currently being denied this choice. We will keep fighting for you. So as heartbreaking as this topic is, today, guys, we are going to hold hands and we are going to walk into that darkness together. Because this is life. This is the journey for so many parents. And the more we talk about it, the lighter it becomes. Let's do it. (laughs) 
Story one. I love you, so goodbye. Meet Angela Gallo, a.k.a. Angel Phoenix. Hi, my name is Angel Phoenix. I am 36 years old, and I am a full-spectrum doula who has been working in the realms of birth and death and sex for a very long time. And I'm a social media influencer, content creator, and essentially brazen advocate and ambassador for all the things I love so much. The day that I meet Angela Gallo, she bounds into the studio wearing a neon orange oversized blazer, white and black checked pants, and the most incredible Crocs I've ever seen. They've kind of got like a bunch of little decorations all over them. She's covered in tattoos and has this spiky bright orange hair, this amazing makeup. I mean, this woman is just an explosion of colour and energy and positivity. A lot of you might actually already know Angela. She's a fairly prolific social media identity who's been in the media on and off over the years through her work as a doula and a teacher. She recently used her Instagram platform to essentially live update her audience on her abortion. There were images, there were videos, there was quite a graphic piece of copy. Um, It was, if I'm honest, it was pretty shocking. So I wanted to get in touch with her and ask why she chose to share such a deeply personal moment in her life and how it's helped further the conversation around abortion. Actually, the first thing I did was scratch my head and say, why can't I find any fucking information about abortion? So what motivated me to get onto social media was to actually ask people, hey, Does anybody have any information on this? Because in my community, I thought maybe someone somewhere would. In 2020, Angela fell pregnant with her ex-boyfriend. Let's call him Matt. She's two children from her previous relationship. He was adamant at that point, like, no, look at the state of the world, look at the state of everything. I just don't think it's a good idea to have a kid. And I agreed with him. But I wanted us to make that decision together. Matt and Angela mutually decided that the best option was to have an abortion, or as she calls it, an empowered loss. But like any woman, Angela was still feeling the tug of connection to the potential of a baby. My frame of mind at the time of finding out that I was pregnant was, you know, war of the worlds in my mind, in my body, in my soul. And, you know, maybe Angela 10 years ago would have been like, well, fuck you, and I'm just going to do this on my own. But this was an opportunity for me to heal a lot of different things. Besides, says Angela, they were essentially homeless at this point in time, with the world in complete and utter turmoil. At this point, we're living in an Airbnb with one bed, no kitchen. Uh, Both of my children and I, like, in this tiny little space. We were there for ages and ages and ages, spending $900 a week. Like, that's just what it was. Uh, And because I own my own business and I do different things, it's not the space that was really a driving factor. It was really about where can we sleep, where we're not going to be on the streets. That's, I'm being honest with you, that's how hectic it was at the time. (sighs) So being homeless, essentially, couch surfing Airbnbs at exorbitant price points, bringing a child into that on a logistical level made no sense. If we take all the emotion out of it, it made no sense. In a pandemic where lockdowns were happening constantly, where we didn't know what was going to happen next, I did not feel like the sensible thing to do to this child was 
birth it just to heal some shadow part of myself. The logistics of seeking an abortion at the time of COVID lockdown was exceptionally difficult. It had been illegal to get an abortion in New South Wales until just the year before. So resources in her local area were pretty much non-existent. Angela realised she was going to have to drive across the border into Queensland to the Gold Coast, which was the closest hospital who would be able to help her access a safe abortion. In the middle of restricted border, uh, restricted access, inability to get interstate, that complicates everything because now you're looking at a literal inability to get wherever it is you need to be. I wanted it to be discreet and I wanted it to be something that I did quietly. But when I started investigating the actual options available to me as a white privileged person, I was like, what the fuck is going on for everybody else right now? Now, I'll be honest, what happened next was a long and drawn out process, which unfortunately I'll have to skim over a bit for this story. There was a lot of red tape getting across the border and still maintaining her privacy about why she was traveling. There was logistics of where she would go after and who'd look after the kids. And then, tragically, Angela's father passed away. So with respect to the enormous undertaking that came before this, I am going to skip ahead to the part where Angela finally gets a telehealth remote appointment and is prescribed the medication she would take to abort the baby. So the time comes. It's early in the evening. Matt comes over and they decide to do the abortion together, along with her kids, Ruby and Odin. So Angela takes the abortion pills. They order some takeaway Italian food, they light some candles, and they wait. I chose to drive back to Byron and really create a ritual out of this experience, right? Something that was poetic and beautiful and empowered. And by this point, we felt solid in our decision. We felt super grounded in what it is we were doing. The kids were involved so they could be healed through, you know, witnessing me move through that process. I asked Angela to really describe this space she created. I planned a ritual at home in this one-bedroom space with no kitchen, candles. Like, I wanted this to be a remarkably different experience. My way of healing this time was by staying out of that system and choosing the feelings I was feeling versus being slammed to the ground and forced to feel things in a rush. So we get back to the spot. We eat. Everything's fine. I took one pill and almost immediately started contracting. And I thought, Jesus Christ, like that is really, really fucking fast. But I thought, well, it kind of makes sense because if I started aborting earlier, whatever it might be. And I just dropped into probably the most autonomous, engaged, passionate version of birth I've ever experienced in all my pregnancies, in all my births, like in in anything that I've ever witnessed. That is what I experienced, like being able to connect with this baby and have this conversation with it and, and let my children watch me and witness me, right? Let my partner, my ex-partner be there for me in the ways that he should have been the other time. Being in awe of my body, Right, watching what it could do, what it could make happen. It was blowing my mind wide open. I treated it like I would treat any other birth. Any birth that I would support for you know to someone else, or the ways that almost I wished I would have been supported in my births, or the ways I wished I could have supported myself. Pretty quickly, Angela says she felt the familiar sensation 
to push. So as I started to bleed and bleed a lot, I found that perplexing because I was like, wow, this is happening very quick. And then clots start coming out. And I swear that I could I could feel baby coming. I could feel almost like he was giving me a warning, like, okay, the next push I'm coming sort of thing. Very, very, very embodied. And everything that came out of my body, I caught it with my own hands, right? So I wasn't on a toilet bowl. I wasn't just like, I wanted to see everything, feel everything, be with everything. Let my kids see everything. Let, you know, let him see everything. And I had this massive contraction and baby and placenta come out at once into my hand. It was confronting, says Angela, but important. She needed to see her baby, to hold the weight of it, and feel some autonomy over her decision. You can really hear her slip into educational mode here, and I think uh, at times it's easier for Angela to look at this moment with the distance of a teacher as opposed to the person experiencing it. In most abortions, they take baby out while you're knocked out with gas. And this is why a lot of people feel traumatized afterwards in the same way there is psychological research where if women do not see a placenta following the birth of their baby, there's a lack of conclusion that actually results in a like the ends not being tied and something doesn't calculate. So in many cultures, they have traditions where the placenta is a focal part of that ceremony, right? Burying it or putting it under the bed because the woman needs to see it. It's like a closing, a sending off. For me to have that experience, to see that and be with that baby and and look at it and love it and worship it and have my, my ex-partner and my kids, all of us doting on that baby was incredibly powerful. I'm going to take a minute here and warn you that the next part does discuss the aborted fetus in graphic detail. Please skip through if this is going to be triggering for you. I would not change a thing because of how beautiful this experience was for me. When baby was born, even just watching my ex-partner interact with this baby was just mind-bending. Like that moment alone baby was moving like you know baby was looking it's this tiny little fetus but it is it is warm to the touch and it is throbbing and it is is looking at you and to see this placenta that you know this this that the body just creates out of nothing like it's it's absolutely mind-bending and we wrap baby up in a little silk pink um and purple this beautiful bundle And we held it and, you know, my ex-partner just literally had the pillow on his chest and held it like an actual baby while I just kept being in labor. Angela, Matt and her two kids all took turns cradling the fetus, saying hello, saying goodbye. In a medical system where there isn't really any emotional considerations for women aborting children, Angela says that there was incredible power in that moment. She made her own ritual. Yeah, just, you know, having this opportunity to connect to... Having this opportunity to connect to something that the medical system treats as a procedure... 
a societally acceptable procedure and process to me felt like the most delicious kind of anarchy. It was like, fuck you. You didn't get to steal this from me. In the maternal health care system, they wave the dead baby card in front of you. And they're like, well, you better listen to what we're saying because if you don't, your baby's going to die. In the abortion system, it's, well, you're a slut. And look, listen to us or not, but if you die, don't come asking us for help. I feel like the, the most revolutionary thing I could do was say, you know what? You can't wave the dead baby card in front of me. I have that power, not you. I get to decide. I get to decide right now who lives and who dies. And you can't take that away from me. And that was remarkably, that was the most autonomous, that was the most independent, that, that was the most powerful I had ever felt. Being able to make that decision for myself, being able to model that decision in front of my children, being able to show my daughter that like, you know what, people are going to give you one option and there's always 10 and you find the option that works for you because it's your body and your bleeding and your heart and your mind and your soul and your life. And nobody should be telling you what decisions to make because you're the one that has to live with it. I am going to take a bet that, like me, you're finding this all pretty confronting. It's not usually how we talk about abortion, right? Like, we don't usually talk about abortion full stop. I mean, we might march down the streets where we talk about our rights and our political rights and our lives and how we need choice and autonomy and medical safety. But this part, the graphic birthing part, it challenged everything I thought I knew about abortion. Here's what Angela posted to her Instagram page. The image that I shared is was a series of videos in stories as well as a photo on my static feed of the full placenta as well as the baby and it's um and in its sack. And no detail is spared. You can see absolutely everything here. And here's an excerpt from the caption that accompanied those images. Just a day after my father passed, I began miscarrying following just one dose of hormone blockers. We ordered lush Italian food, rented one of my favorite 90s movies, and cuddled up to RJ and Odin. Soon thereafter, my partner came over. I started to feel surges come on, a small reminder that this was indeed a birth just like any other. I went into the shower and spoke to baby. I knew the ways I wanted to revere them. This was the priority. The lighting, the words, the exchanges, the attention from him and his involvement was something that this baby deserved and I did too. And in that respect, it was perfect. In less than two hours, I birthed our perfectly intact baby and placenta. My partner and I cried, voiced feelings and excavated healing. My hands covered in blood and my face streaming in tears. The entirety of this felt like a deeply spiritual experience. We wrapped baby in a silk scarf, interlaced them between our hands and wept. Ruby came to meet her sibling, curious and in awe, and we made space for her grief too. I continued to labor intensely, which I had not anticipated, and this went for hours. My partner stood by dedicated. When he slept, the small silk square was always nuzzled close to his face. While I moaned into the night, he guarded her. I was really, really heavily pregnant when I saw Angela's post about this. 
It was like a sleepy Sunday morning. I was in bed scrolling and bang, there's this really full-on image of Angela's hand and a paper towel and this tiny placenta. I remember like squinting at this picture and and zooming in and going, what is that? And then realising that this little marble-looking thing was the baby. It was the fetus. I just, I, I wanted to cry. I was so shocked. But when that passed, there was a new emotion that I felt. It was like relief, maybe, or recognition. Um, It was something about the rawness of this post, the honesty. It felt safe. Um, It smashed a lot of boundaries around the topic of abortion, and it made it okay. Not like the thing you never want to talk about, the thing that only comes up tearfully after too many bottles of wine. You know, like, Angela owned this moment. She ran it. She she was in charge. And there was something incredibly beautiful about that. Unsurprisingly, not everyone saw it this way. There was major blowback to her Instagram story. After much deliberation, I posted the images and the videos of my experience. And boy, did that get a reaction. Which I'm not naive. We're talking thousands of likes, hundreds of comments, thousands of direct messages, and 15,000 people unfollowed me the same day. Some of the worst responses that I got to that post specifically and into my stories, woo-wee, death threats, condemning me to hell, (laughs) telling me that I should be ashamed that my kids would look back at this and realize what a horrible human being I was, that there are special pits in purgatory for women like me, that I should have my womb removed because I don't deserve to have children. The list is long. Weirdly, a lot of the hate mail came from people who disagree with the fact that Angela had her kids present during the abortion. Yeah, so my kids have been involved in my birth work since day dot. Like, she's been at the births and she's played with so many placentas and he's seen everything. And so I forget that on the outside that there are other people who don't do those things. And the driver for most of this sheltering is we don't want to traumatize children while omitting that by not showing them these things, we're traumatizing them. By compartmentalizing the brands of ourselves that we show our kids, we are we are alienating them in really devastating ways. Having Ruby involved in the abortion also gave her the chance to move through the grief, says Angela. She was able to witness the pain her mum went through, rather than feel confusion at this kind of secondhand sadness that she didn't really understand. My daughter wanted a sibling so badly. So badly. She That's all she would speak about. She stopped now, but she just wanted a sibling so badly. She wanted a sister. She was so ecstatic. And to have to have those conversations with my daughter about how I'm so sad that I'm disappointing you, but this is a decision I need to make for me, also added that layer because she cried a lot. So she had to grew up really quickly in that moment and she had to understand why people make decisions that they make and she had to you know we had to have some big fucking conversations and for a seven-year-old it's hectic opening up this really intimate moment with followers online must have been terrifying like the internet can be really horrible even about your choice of footwear let alone your decision to have an abortion 
I asked Angela why she felt compelled to share. This is something that I really tossed and turned about sharing. It was not something that I did on a whim. I sat on it and I sat on it and I just kind of listened to my body. And it was very clear to me that I needed to, much like birth photography, I needed to treat this as a lesson and a trial and a pearl of wisdom that people needed to hear. It's just that this one didn't come with a face that people are used to seeing. And to me, confrontation is the most sophisticated form of evolution, right? It's an invitation that makes us uncomfortable and that discomfort forces us to grow, forces us to see things differently. One of my favorite moments from this interview was when Angela spoke about the importance of marking death with honor. I have to be invested in redefining our relationship with death in respect to reimagining our relationship with the death of our child. Have you ever seen those TikTok videos where it's their dog's last day on earth? And they spend the whole day making sure that the dog has had his favorite Kentucky Fried Chicken and that they've visited his favorite park and they've done all these things. That person is choosing for that dog to die. That person is making that decision from a place of mercy, from a place of respect, from a place of reverence for that animal that they love so fucking much. And those videos go viral because they're equally confronting as they are just like, you swell with this palpable kind of, I don't even know what you call it. It's, it's like, I can't even begin to explain how those videos make me feel. And that was actually the foreplay for why I chose to do this because of that disconnect. Why can't I choose to show mercy to this child and to myself and decorate it with ritual in the same way? Why, why, why does this death deserve any less? In the wake of Roe v. Wade being overturned, social media has been lit up with the same activity and enthusiasm and passion as the Me Too movement. Everyone is sharing their stories of abortion, how it literally has saved their lives. It's unimaginable that for women around the world, they're still just fighting for it to be legal. So step one is just legalising the damn thing. Making abortion safe, making it accessible, taking away any risk to the mother. That is the baseline expectation that women do not die in the process of having a choice. But what Angela is showing us is actually step two. It's a step beyond that. It's some magical time in the future where abortion is safe and then we actually get some autonomy over how it happens, like levelling it up, providing ritual, not disconnecting from the experience but feeling safe enough to fully drop in if you want, you know, and totally cool if you don't. But that's the great thing about choice, isn't it? It's about having the option to choose a journey that won't leave you traumatised for the rest of your life. So, honestly, I'm not sure how else to end this story, but to say we have come so far, but my God, we have so far to go. Time for an 
story two. She had my eyes. What's your greatest fear as a parent? I think almost all of us would say it's losing a child. Our reptilian brains are just not hardwired to deal with it. Us before then. Maybe this is why we so rarely hear stories about parents losing their children, because it's just too hard, it doesn't compute, it's too painful. Perhaps it's society's absolute determination not to discuss infant loss that has created this growing pocket of people online who are carving out a safe, open and supportive space to grieve and to talk. This is going to seem super unlikely, but I'm actually talking about TikTok. For those listening who don't know what that is, it's a social media platform where users uh, share videos. They're short, usually captioned and with music, and in the few years it's been around, it's become home to all sorts of niche groups, really. And one of these uh, little microcosms is that of grieving parents, especially of young children. And it was here that I found Alexandra Pagan. She's a teacher from New York who recently lost her daughter, Amila. Okay, so my name is Alexandra Pagan. I am 21 years old. I am currently a substitute teacher um, at a charter school here in Buffalo, New York. I'm from here, Buffalo, um, born and raised here. Um, But yeah, that's who I am. I am a 21-year-old mom. (laughs) In 2020, Alex and her boyfriend found out that she was pregnant. It was a surprise, but they were both so excited. Alex is a primary school teacher. She loves kids and she couldn't wait to be a mom. But the mood quickly changed when she went for her first scan. So um, the pregnancy was not planned at all. It was definitely an unexpected pregnancy. Um, I definitely was, um, we weren't trying to have a baby at all, but it was our first baby together. And um, when I first found out, we both were willing to move forward. At first, you know, the first trimester, I bet every woman in the world can truly understand where I'm I'm coming from. The first trimester was the worst. Throwing up, you know, morning sickness was just the worst. And then um, when I went in for my first ultrasound ever, seeing my my baby girl for the first time ever, um, that's when I started noticing um, the ultrasound technician just, like, being very quiet, not as— talkative as I seen like on TikTok with other moms and stuff um that's when I noticed something was wrong especially when she said you know I need to get the doctor real quick Alex and her partner immediately understood something wasn't right I was 13 weeks and four days I believe yep 13 weeks and four days so um just right there between the 14 weeks second trimester mark um so then that's when they noticed my daughter had a uh, hernia basically in her umbilical cord. So it kind of looked like um, organs were forming outside of the belly already by that time. So that's when, you know, they referred me to uh, see a high-risk doctor. And then when I went to go see the high-risk risk doctor, they confirmed that it was a giant omphalocele. That's what her condition is called. So with my daughter, she had a giant omphalocele because she had the liver, intestines, um, stomach. And then at birth, we found out she had her spleen as well outside of her body. The doctors told Alex that Amilla's condition was not compatible with life and that if she continued the pregnancy, she needed to prepare for the fact that her daughter was not going to survive. I... I feel like uh, 
the way that the doctor first told me, the first doctor that told me about her um, condition, he was kind of like leaning, like, you know what, you need to get, you need to terminate right now because she's not going to last. She's just, it's just a very, you know, serious, dangerous condition. You know, I think you should terminate, like just leaning towards the termination. And at that point, I couldn't, you know, I seen my daughter for the first time at the ultrasound, you know, in the ultrasound. And I fell in love with her. I fell in love with her the moment I found out I was pregnant with her. So I was just like, I can't, you know, if, if I'm, you know, if there's a chance of me losing her, why not giving her, give her a fighting chance to fight for her life, you know? So that's when I just ignored all the doctors, what they were saying, and just went along with the pregnancy. Let me tell you, here's something you should know about Alex. This woman is a fighter. There wasn't anything anyone could tell her that would have changed her mind about Amila. She was growing her daughter and that was it. Her partner backed her 100%, but even Alex admits nothing could match the fire that had been lit inside of her. I wasn't able, I wasn't able to terminate my child. I wasn't. It's just something that I was not going to go through. I had a little bump, you know. I was already used to it. <sighs> it's kind of hard because our relationship was very difficult because knowing what was going on with our daughter, I think it, it affected him a lot. But he's a very, like, silent to himself. Like, he doesn't talk about it. Um but we talked about it after, um, you know, she got here and stuff. You know, he was telling me, I, you were the only person that gave me hope. He he would tell me this a lot even after she passed away. You know, you were the one that gave me hope. I didn't know how, how I could be there for you when you had the weight on your, of the world on your shoulders. You know, how can I be there for someone when you have already the weight of the world on you, you know, and it's so hard. He was there. He was there at every doctor's appointment at 3 o'clock in the morning when I needed to go to the emergency room for contractions, uh, preterm labor. He was there. He was there for every single thing, and I couldn't ask for more supportive uh, partner, boyfriend, father ever. So Alex and her partner continued the pregnancy like any other parents, setting up the nursery, buying clothes, talking about names. They had a baby shower. Alex took to her Instagram just like anyone else to upload belly photos and glamour shots of her cradling her stomach. She looks really happy. And despite what anyone said, they were preparing for her daughter to live. Soon the big day arrived and it was time to meet their little girl. So everything was a scheduled C-section because of uh, all the organs. You know, I wasn't, I wouldn't be able to push her out with all her organs. Yeah. So I had to get a scheduled C-section, um, and because her organs were exposed to the air and the oxygen and stuff, her, she did catch a lot of infections. So the four surgeries that my daughter had were not to put things back inside because her body was—she was just too little. She was a premature baby, and her body was too weak to even tolerate all these big organs to go back inside. Emila's tiny belly was completely splayed open with her liver, stomach, intestines, and spleen all having grown outside of the body. Because of this, doctors were scrambling to find a way to keep everything protected from infection while still allowing her to grow. So then the final surgery, they finally got um, a big, huge A-cell sheet. It's like, I don't know how to explain the A-cell sheet. It's like a thin layer of like cells, basically a, a sheet of cells, and they just wrap it around her womb and they just sew it to her stomach. And basically she will grow into it and things can finally go back inside. Um, so that was her final surgery. And this was, mm, I'd say she was like three and a half weeks old. And... 
When I say most of the doctors were wrong about my daughter when she was first born, she had nothing wrong with with her heart. She was crying. She was breathing on her own. Um, She was just this feisty little baby. And she was defying all the odds already at birth when we were in the operation room. So it's just like, you know, doctors may think that they know it all. But then again, you don't know until the baby's there, actually, you know? Amila Isabel Pagan was beautiful. June 21st, 2021, at 11.48pm, she was born weighing 4 pounds, 9 ounces and measuring 16 inches long. She had her mother's dark hair and dark eyes with 10 perfect fingers and 10 perfect toes. Alex reckons she looks like her partner, but from all the photos that I've seen, she's all Alex. Black hair that stood up in tufts, little fat croissant legs and beautiful chubby cheeks. In videos Alex has uploaded to her social media accounts, you see Emila wiggling her toes in absolute bliss as Alex massages them. Her tiny hands wrap around Alex's finger. She was there. She was there and she was with her mum. It's so easy to forget in the sea of medical terms and survival statistics that underneath all of it, when you push all of that aside, was just a little baby girl and her parents. Two months go by. Alex is up there every day. She puts bows in Amila's hair, takes photos of her next to tiny soccer jerseys from her dad's team. You see photos of Amila watching intently as doctors change a tube or replace something or other. She's a serious little thing, very alert but adorable, and every part of you believes that aside from the fact that her organs are on the outside of her body, she's a perfectly healthy baby girl. Alex says that by three months, Amila had actually started to make exceptional progress. That's when I asked doctors, like, okay, what's the next step now that she's doing good? All her tests and labs are coming back really good. What are we going to do next? Alex felt like they were making real progress. Emila was off the oscillator and stacking on the weight, and everything seemed good. Until it wasn't. Early one morning, Alex got the call from the hospital. Uh, um, At 6.30 in the morning, I got a call from one of her primary nurses. So it's just a nurse that... um, Whenever she's on shift in the NICU, that's the baby that she's going to be with. Um, Emily calls me and she's like, Alex, um, you need to come. Um, Mila's heart stopped. She was having a bronchospasm. Bronchospasms are just, when she's been intubated for over three months, your throat starts spazzing basically because you're, you have a tube in your throat for so long. Her throat was spazzing too much and basically she would like clamp down and her airway would cut off. But the two episodes before the one she passed away, she, the nurses would just bag her up and her oxygen levels would come right back up. Her heart wouldn't stop. So the first thing I just thought of when she told me her heart stopped, I'm like, what happened? Like, what what is she? How? How did her heart stop? She was just fine. Um... I get to the, this was the longest ride to the hospital I've ever had in my life. This was just, and I was, when I tell you, I was, I know it's illegal, but I was eating every stoplight, every stop sign. I was just driving, 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 driving. I put my hazards on just in case a cop had to pull me over. 
but I, I needed to get to my daughter. I needed to. Alex says that she was driving so erratically that her partner asked her to actually stop driving and let him take over. You really get a sense for how frantic this moment was for her. Midway to the hospital, me and my boyfriend jumped switch seats because I was driving too crazy, so we just switched seats. As soon as he pulls up right in front of the um, hospital, I jump right out. Already the security guards, everyone knows me already because I've been there for three months already. So they're just like, just go up, just go up. I go upstairs. I ring on a NICU doorbell because you have to ring on the bell. I get there and all I hear is a lot of nurses just yelling, she's here. Alex is here, she's here, mom's here. And it's one of the worst things I think about because I think about this every time I close my eyes. And I see my daughter's lifeless arms just flapping. She just, her arms are just flapping up and down as everyone is resuscitating her. When I see it, I just drop to the floor because I can't believe that this is happening to me. And they tell me right there that she was having a bronchospasm and her heart just stopped. And it was one of the worst days of my life seeing that my daughter is gone. And the doctor, one of her physicians that I know very well, because she's been working with her since she was born, she looks at me and I know she's looking at me for me to tell her to stop because... It's my job to tell her to stop resuscitating my daughter, but I don't want to because I just wanted my daughter. But she was gone. So I look away from her and I just, like, I don't know what to do. And I was waiting. I was like, where's Mikey? My boyfriend, that's his name. I'm like, where's Mikey? Where's Mikey? He's parking the car. So he comes running into the door and I'm just, like, holding him. I'm like, babe, I don't know what to do. I don't want to tell her to stop. And then her nurse just comes to me and she's like, we've been doing this for 30 minutes, Alex. She's gone. (laughs) I just felt so numb at that point. I just felt like I couldn't cry anymore. I just felt like I couldn't do any of it anymore. I just felt like my, my heart is gone. She took my heart with her. I felt like she was just my whole heart and it would... It was just got ripped into pieces when she told me, do you want to hold her? And I remember holding her for the first time. And the first time I got to see her full face because of the, she was ventilated. So she had so many tubes around her mouth and stuff. So I couldn't see her face fully. And that was the first, the first time I got to see my daughter. And the first time I got to kiss my daughter on her cheeks because of COVID and RSV and flu season, I didn't want to kiss my daughter on the lips, I mean, on her face or anything like that because I I was scared to get her sick. So I would just kiss her on her feet. I would kiss her on her hands, but not on her face because of all these things going around. And when I first kissed my daughter on on her face, on her cheeks, it just felt like no one was there, you know? It just felt so cold and so just didn't feel what I thought it would feel when I would kiss my daughter for the first time in her face. Like, it was just one of the worst moments of my life. And I felt so numb, the numb feeling of just, like, in shock. Like, this is really my life, you know? This is what's going on now. Now I have to be a mom without a baby. (sighs) 
I wonder how it feels for you to listen to this. It's pretty huge stuff. I sobbed during the interview, if I'm honest. The transcript is peppered with apologies from me for being so unprofessional and, quite frankly, I cried writing this script too. Even now as I'm recording it, I have to keep pausing because I'm just choking on the words. It's tragic. But, my God, it feels so good to just break down this wall and to hear it firsthand. I am so, so grateful to you, Alex, for letting us share in this moment because this is parenthood. Okay, so let's keep going. Amilla was announced dead at 7.02am. It was time for Alex and her partner to say goodbye to their feisty little girl. And then I just held her and played some some of her lullabies that she really liked a lot. She really, really, really loved some of her lullabies. And we, me and her dad, just held her and kissed her for as long as we could and and yeah that was that was our day there that was our last day there in NICU they were so amazing all the doctors and nurses were just truly 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 so amazing and then they just had to go home after the funeral Alex says she fell into a deep depression After over a year of spending so much of her day with Amilla on Amilla's medical treatment, her whole mind and body and soul had been given over to her daughter and now she didn't know what to do with that time. It was just empty. It was around this time that Amilla turned to TikTok. She had joined back in 2020 during the pandemic, like most of us, but hadn't really had much to do with it. But as she tried to navigate this horrendous new world of grief and emptiness, she realised there was a whole community of people doing the exact same thing. I wasn't really on mom TikTok. I seen a lot of videos of pregnancy TikTok and, you know, everyone talking about their pregnancies and stuff. But I never was really, really, really on pregnancy TikTok until, and mom TikTok until I got pregnant. And then when I got pregnant, I wanted to see more videos of, you know, of babies and kids and, you know, parenting styles and stuff like that to prepare myself to be a mom, you know. Not necessarily to talk to, more so to just watch videos of other moms and their just what they've been through NICU stuff um phallusial stuff um baby stuff just just things to prepare myself for the worst things to prepare me like all right these are the wires these are the, the the tubes these are the machines that my daughter can possibly be on you know I need to see know what it is and what it does you know and honestly it helped me a lot like knowledge-wise to know certain words, um, certain medical terms and stuff like that. It helped me so much to know a lot more about my own daughter's medical stuff. Like it it helped me tremendously, tremendously looking up to these women, even preparing myself for the worst to watch other infant loss mothers. Um, I, I, I've never reached out to infant mothers that, that have lost their babies. I've always commented, like, you know, I'm so sorry. I'm here for you if you ever need anything. When I was researching this piece, I spent some time watching videos in this strange little pocket of TikTok. And it's very confronting, I won't lie. Lots of little babies in big machines. Lots of funerals with tiny, tiny caskets. 
it's confronting for me because I haven't had to go through this, but I can absolutely understand that for those who have, not having to censor any details of your real life must be a huge relief. I asked Alex what drew her to TikTok as she was grieving Emila. It makes me feel like, hey, you're not alone. I'm here. I'm here right with you, fighting with you every single day, fighting the urge to live, finding my purpose of life, finding my purpose of living, even though the purpose of my life was is gone now. You know, I'm, I'm a mother without a child. It, it makes me feel so, so hurt because I don't, this pain, honestly, Maggie, I do not want no one to feel because it's such an awful pain, awful, awful pain that no mother should ever go through, no mother. And I, it's the, just the connection that I have with, with a woman. As soon as a woman, I see a woman losing a child, it's an instant connection I have with her because it's something me and her can relate to. Not a lot of people can, but me and this woman can. Me and her can relate the emptiness that we feel every day, the aching of crying for our child, wondering what our child is going to be or could have been. You know, it's just something. Alex says that one of the constant themes in her conversations online are around the mysteries of it all, the stuff that the doctors couldn't answer. Who could Amila have grown up to be? What if she had followed her gut feeling about the nurse on duty that night? Was she, Alex, going to survive this? I think the most common thing, I think, in our our infant loss community that we bring up the most is just the feeling of not knowing, not knowing your your child, not knowing where your child could have been, um, feeling like your whole heart it, it it literally feels like your whole heart just sinks all the way deep, 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 deep down inside your body. And you just have this pit like, oh, I wonder what my baby would have been. I wonder what what she, she would have been doing right now. And it's so crazy because I talk about this with my boyfriend all the time. Like, I wonder what she would have been. I wonder how her character would have been, who she would have, her personality and all this stuff. Um... It feels the the one thing also that that's common is the feeling of like it feels forever. It feels like a, a lifetime of grief. It's this lifetime of grief that a mother is always going to have in her heart. Like the acceptance of losing your child is so hard. It's so hard to accept the fact that you lost your child. It's it's one of the hardest things I feel like any mother is ever gonna go through is if they ever go through this. Alex still posts a lot about Amila. There's heaps of pictures and videos and, you know, photos from the funeral, everything. Her journey is there for everyone to see, and I wonder if this is part of her grieving process. I don't know why, but being witnessed in our pain sometimes makes it just a little bit lighter. But Alex says that she had plenty of people telling her that this was not appropriate. You know, but I've gotten a lot of, like, backlash when I posted about my daughter and stuff, especially about when I posted about um, her send-off and stuff. I, I did get a lot of backlash, like, why would you post this? This is so personal. Why you keep talking about this? This is so personal. I'm like, it's very personal. From, like, TikTok, just just random, yeah, online, random people, you know, people that I don't know all over the world, just saying negative things. You know, there's always negative Nancys out there, but I feel as though that social media Nowadays, it's sometimes it's not good. A lot of things on social media isn't good. But when there's 
things like educational purposes, things like this needs to be put out there. Things like infant loss needs to be put out there because honestly, pregnancy, when you're first pregnant, no one has ever told me about infant loss. No one has ever told, you know, there's a risk of you losing your baby, you know, stuff like that. There's you don't really hear that often. So then when I'm telling my daughter's story, you know, here are some things to look, watch out for when you're pregnant. Here's some things to, you know, if you're going through, if your child has the same thing as my child, here's some things you can, you know, just someone that you can also educate yourself on and knowing that infant loss shouldn't, or any loss shouldn't be you know, behind closed doors, unless you want to, personally want to, that's okay. But I feel as though that it's so, so important for other women and other moms and dads to see that, like, again, you're not alone. You are not alone. Alex says that TikTok was super helpful as she was preparing for Amila's birth. It was kind of like exposure therapy. It's very, very hard to see these, these very graphic pictures of babies that are so, so, like, at the gestational age of just 20, 20 weeks, 21 weeks, you know. Um, it's so hard to see all these things, but it also is very educational and it's very necessary, especially for new new uh, new mothers. New mothers like like I was, I was just so afraid of, of everything. I feel like every mother should see all these things if you're going to go through it, you know, if you know that your child has these things. I know a lot of mothers on TikTok get a lot of backlash for posting pictures and videos of their child like I have, but it's like, it, it's a, it's more so educational and creating awareness than so, you know, feel sorry for me. Because that's what a lot of people think. A lot of people think I post these videos and stuff for people to feel sorry for me. No, I post a lot of things to... So people can can see and educate themselves. Like, you know, there is a lot of things that can happen to your baby that you would never know. You know, you would never know any of this if you don't see these signs. Alex stresses to me over and over again the importance of finding community. She says it pretty much is what got her through this. If you listening are currently in the blackness of this grief and despair of losing a baby, Here's what Alex has to say. This is a community of us. This is a safe place for all of us. I want you guys to all know that you guys are truly, truly not alone. And it's okay to not be okay. He or she is going to be an angel for the rest of their life. Their soul will live on through you. I believe my daughter lives through me every single day. I believe she's my guardian angel, just like how every other one's babies are going to be their angels for the rest of their life, you know? You're not alone. You are not alone. Share your story. Let your story be heard about your baby because they deserve it. So that's it. Thank you for walking through this with me. Share this, if you can, with someone who needs it. And maybe also for those who think they don't. God, like the importance of all parent kind sharing these stories with each other and holding each other and talking about it, it's just massive. Alex is absolutely right. The babies deserve it, but so do the brave, resilient parents who are left behind. I'm not a religious person, so no one's praying on this podcast. But maybe the airwaves will reach Emila wherever she is. So, little one, here's a message from your mum. Mommy misses you so much. I know you're always with me. I know you're right beside me right now. 
and I know you're with your family up there. I know you're with all of your family up there with my grandma and your titis and stuff, your aunts. I love you so much. I miss you so much. And I just can't wait to see you again. Oh, guys. That was a really hard episode to get through. I don't think I've ever had to stop so many times to just have a little cry. But it, it feels good. It feels cathartic. You know, we don't talk about this stuff, but it's so important that we try. For every story shared, we get a little more insight into the shared human experience. Um, that's not always happy, you know. Loss, grief, mourning. These are natural parts of the parenthood experience. So what happens, I wonder, when we embrace them with the same energy as the nice stuff? Maybe it gets easier. Maybe we learn to support each other in more meaningful ways. If you would like to see more from the absolute powerhouse that is Angela Gallo, find her on Instagram at the underscore angel underscore phoenix. Thank you, Angela, and thank you, Alex, for sharing so openly and so generously. I know that a lot of people are going to find solace in your words. And you, lovely listener, thank you for hanging out. And as always, remember that this might be a small story of one parent, but it is one huge tale of parent kind. This has been a Super Real production. Parent Kind is produced by Julian Morgans and our executive producer is Rachel Tuffrey. Our sound design and original music composition is by Jimmy Saunders and our theme song is sung by Louisa Rankin. The show has been edited by Jimmy Saunders and Patrick O'Farrell and our artwork is by Ben Thompson. Thanks for listening to our show.